welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast, hosted by me, Samuel Salser, and Aline Holsworth, who I would say in this case is the star of the show. Well done, Aline, for, for covering for me and, and just doing a fantastic job hosting this episode alone. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'd like to think that I do a fantastic job in all of our episodes, but um, I, will, I will take your praise and uh, <laughs> very, very yes. happily. Thank you. Well, That's clearly nice. you do. Clearly you do. Uh, but it's always <laughs> nice, you know, when I'm sick, for example, knowing that I have, you know, the best co-host in the world that can oh. do things alone. Well, I'm sure I can lead on you if I ever get sick as well. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if you can. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I can tell you about what we talk about in this episode. Um, so Sanjay, he's he's probably the world's leading expert in personality. He's you know if you if you want to learn um, you know about the, the research in personality, the real research, right? Um, Sanjay is the the person to to go to. So and he, naturally, he has a great personality as well. He does have a great personality. Yeah, I would say like you know at least like top three personalities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, what did you guys talk about? Uh, I mean, naturally, we we cover all things personality. So, from your Harry Potter house to uh, what's known as the curly fry problem, um, we talk about how friction influences user experience and outcomes, both when this is done intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, we talk about the potential for designing interventions based on personality trait. Uh, so it's kind of a very, very popular um, strategy that that many organizations take. And the stability of personality as a construct. So how much does personality change over time and in different contexts? And uh, and we have a very interesting discussion about the design and use of the corporate personality test. Uh, and and this was especially fun for me because we we both sort of repeatedly changed our minds throughout this. Discussion. We convinced each other to, to take a take a different uh, opinion on it. Um, so stay tuned, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it as well. Let's get it started. Heavens to Megatroid. Well, Sanjay, welcome so much to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. Um, we like to ask all of our guests. Of course, it's just me today. Sam is Sam is out. But um, I, let's just go with our first question, which is, you know, we really try to focus on applied behavioral science and, you know, kind of in the wild so behavioral design. Have you seen any uh, any examples that re have really stuck with you, either in terms of a, a really good example of behavioral design or a really bad example, something that really went wrong and backfired? So this is like you know outside of the academic setting where someone's trying to apply behavioral science to change behavior, to influence someone, or, or, or so on and so forth. Yeah, have you thought about this at all? Yeah, you know uh, that's interesting. I'm trying to think of a specific example. I mean something. I notice a lot just as as a user of technology products is like how much friction is there to do something that you want to do. And as we're recording this, I just joined Mastodon, um, which is a, a sort of open source alternative to Twitter. And so in my mind right now, of course, <laughs> you know, um, uh, I, I'm still learning it, but, you know, it, it's... It's interesting because a lot of open source software has this, it's it's done by enthusiasts, by hobbyists, or by people who aren't getting paid very much. 
and they don't have a gigantic like corporate UX design team. And, and some of it gets to be really good eventually um, once it builds a big user base. But that's often something I find on, on these kind of projects. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm going to age myself a little bit, but I, I remember installing R, the, the stats, the statistical programming environment back when it was in beta. And, you know, it was, it was glitchy and, and it was weird. And, and, you know, people have developed now there's R Studio, like R Studio wasn't around. So there, there's this like software environment that has all these nice like tools and interfaces. None of that was there. And, you know, like trying to print output was like, you know, what do you do? Like you, you know, because it was just this, this sort of very basic software package. And so, so there's things like that. I'm noticing right now, you know, I mentioned Mastodon that it's, it's this really nifty sort of open source social networking service. Um, and some of it is just transition costs. Like I just have to learn a new thing, but some of it is yeah. like, oh, I have to click three or four times to do something that should be instantaneous. And, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of like, you know, economists use tax policy to like make it a little more expensive to do something they don't want you to do, like buy cigarettes or gas or whatever. And it's like, oh, there's a little bit of like an effort tax on like following somebody. And so was that, you know, and in some cases, it's interesting because in, in some cases, some things I think are intentional in the design, like they don't want virality, they want to kind of right. flatten the the curve on, you know, on how things blow up. And so I, in some ways, it's kind of interesting, because I think some of the friction is actually intentional. And then some mm -hmm. of it is just, you know, um, it's, it's just a different thing. Yeah, yeah. Some of it is there to stop misinformation from spreading, whereas other times you, it might be like, oh, you just didn't think about the user experience, or or maybe you thought about it, but you didn't prioritize it enough, or or don't realize what a large impact it's going to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the misinformation is interesting because like Twitter has started doing this thing where if you retweet something with an article link. It knows if you've clicked and read the article link, it'll pop up this little box saying, do you want to read the article first? And and yeah. usually it annoys me because it's like, I already read the article, yeah. it's not or through like, your I stupid wrote the browser. Article. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like, oh, that's that's kind of like, that's that's intentional friction, right? It's yeah. They're not stopping you, they're just making you do one extra click. Um, and I don't, I, I mean... I don't know the research. I don't know how well that stuff works, but it it sort of intuitively, it's like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense, even if it annoys me once in a while. <laughs> yeah, cool. Love it. Um, okay, great. So let's uh, let's dive into our product. We, uh, we like to choose a product for each of our guests and kind of do a little bit of a dive and, and try and improve it using behavioral science. Um, and so for you, we've chosen the uh, the corporate personality test. Um, and so I think like it may be a good way to start is to just um, talk about how, like what is the problem with corporate personality tests anyway in terms of how they're designed, how they're used. Um, and, and then we can start problem solving from there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, some, some of this is going to depend on like, what are they using it for? Right. Yeah, so yeah. Some companies use them as a, a hiring um, screen, right? They'll, they'll, they'll give it to, to applicants and use it for selection. Some companies will use it internally for promotion. And then some will use it as a sort of 
more of a like development tool where they'll, you know, give people feedback and sort of, you know, help them try to understand what they have to work on and what they're doing well. So there's a lot of different things they can be used for. Um, and there's also, you know, and, and there's complexities and all that stuff and, and all, any kind of like testing and assessment intersects not only with the scientific issues of, you know, reliability and validity and that kind of thing. And, and there's a lot of snake oil personality tests out there, <laughs> but then also with a bunch of legal and ethical and regulatory issues about like, you know, um, you can use a, a test that's valid in a scientific setting in a really bad way mm-hmm. in an applied setting. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a big complicated issue. So there, there's probably a million directions we could go. I don't know if yeah. there's one of those avenues well, seems more interesting. Well, what do you think is the most common use in, in the industry setting? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, um, like, is it the hiring? I don't know if it's the, if hiring is the most common use. It's definitely something you see a fair amount of. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's one of them. I think, you know, they're also, I think hiring is one. And then the other one I hear about a lot is, is like, they'll use them internally for sort of like workshops and feedback, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's this, there, you know, there's this, the saying like, a, a, you know, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So one of the issues at the hiring stage, especially is, is like, if there's stakes attached to it, you have to think about that. The, you know, are people, this is something that as a, as a researcher, people, you know, cause I do a lot of personality assessment in, in my, you know, academic research and people will be like, aren't people just like lying and, and telling you all good things about themselves? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, because there's no stakes. Like they're <laughs> filling out this questionnaire. It's disappearing into the void. No human being is ever looking at it. They don't care. They're just like the sort of cognitive lazy thing to do is to be honest. Cause you, uh, you know, lying takes time to think of answers. So it's like in, in academic settings, some of these questionnaires, like we get, you know, pretty useful. Like there's ways to sort of assess the, the validity but, you know, you, you use this in a screening context and, you know, and you, you have to start thinking like, are people just going to be faking good or are some people going to be faking good and some aren't? And you're going to end up selecting the ones who fake good and not, you know, not the people who are honest with you. And, and so there's issues like that as well. But then there's also the like, what decision are you going to make with it? Because validity has a different meaning when you're using something for applied decision-making, right? Validity in a basic research setting means sort of a justified interpretation, but in a, you know, in a, in a business setting, if you're using it, let's say for selection, it means, you know, justified selection decisions. And, and again, that can be a different thing. You can, you know, some of the personality questionnaires I use have, you know, scales that are associated with mental health, for example. Um, and that's really important as a researcher to be assessing, you know, things that are associated with vulnerability to depression and anxiety and that kind of thing. That's part of your personality. In a selection setting, man, that is fraught um, yeah. to be like <laughs> saying, you know, we're, we're measuring people's neuroticism, their negative affect, um, which is a standard part of the big five. And we're going to stick that into an algorithm to tell us who performs well at work and who we should be hiring. Like, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it seems to me like that couldn't possibly be legal. Um, 
I, you know, I've seen commercialized versions of the Big Five that actually drop that dimension. But I've also oh, heard stories of, I don't know how often this happens, but I've heard of companies using the MMPI, which is a clinical assessment tool. It is specifically for measuring psychopathology, using that in hiring settings. And I'm like, that's all mental health. I mean, there, there are other scales that you can score from it and whatever, but it's like, you should you know, you shouldn't be using that in a selection context. Like that's, that's, you know, it, and it raises some really complicated questions because validity and bias and fairness are three completely separate things. And like, you know, if somebody is vulnerable to mental health issues, you can raise a question about like, how is that going to affect their work? And maybe it will, maybe it won't. But that's completely separate from the question of is it fair to use that whether it does or not? And hell no, it's not. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, um, you know, and that's why I said these these sort of personality questionnaire applied uses aren't just a sort of scientific scientific question about validity. They also bring in ethics and, and legal issues and everything else. Yeah, it seems it seems like a, a pretty big no no to use any sort of person, or at least some of the more sensitive dimensions to to justify or, or to to base your hiring uh, or any sort of selection um, decisions on. Is there any version of this that you think is good and useful in terms of it in the hiring uh, domain? Yeah, so it's complicated because I think when we hear personality, when we just hear the word. It evokes a whole bunch of associations. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, is, is immersed in that literature and, and who knows what's on these questionnaires and that kind of thing, it's like some of the, some of the questions on these questionnaires are the same kinds of things you would ask about in a, in a behavioral interview. If you're hiring someone, you just wouldn't label it personality, right? So like there's a dimension in the big five that the label for it is conscientiousness. And it relates to things like being reliable, getting things done on time, you know, following rules. Like these are all things that in an interview you want to know, like, does this person turn in their work on time? Yeah. Like <laughs> and a tendency to do that is is one of the ways that personality varies. Some people are characteristically better at that than others. And so so there is a sense in which some of these things that we call personality questionnaires are they do overlap content wise with the kind of things that are asked in hiring. And, and there's a you know, there's a pretty good literature from industrial organizational psychology, which is, you know, sort of the subfield. It's, it's kind of adjacent to mine, um, showing that these things do predict workplace performance after people are hired. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the line is fuzzy and, yeah. and there's a way in which, you know, questionnaires are, I mean, where questionnaires came from historically was they, they were a convenient way to do interviews, to standardize interviews, right? Back in the day, psychologists would talk to people um, and then somebody figured out, weird. well, if I just write down the questions <laughs> and have everyone answer the same question, it's, it's a, a little more efficient. Uh -huh. And that's kind of how these came from. And so it's sort of like co coming back around, like interviews are just somebody talking to somebody. Uh -huh. Um, and so they just haven't caught on yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and so it's just, it's in some ways it's like a standardized interview, which is really good hiring practice. Um, right. And so, so it's complicated because, yeah, the, the, I think, like I said, personality evokes all the, the, these meanings to people about somebody's identity. I think some people, when they hear personality, they think, oh, you're 
measuring things about people that are that they can't change about themselves, mm-hmm. which is not yeah. true. But um, uh, you know, so so it is it, it is complicated. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on that is de facto personality testing that people just aren't calling it that, um, and that, which is fine. Like call it whatever you want. You know, the real question is: is it valid and is it there? Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I, you've, you, I've come around. I, I think originally <laughs> I, I thought, oh, like, you know, there's no case in which this, <laughs> this would, this would be useful and good. Um, but I think just thinking of it as a standardized interview, it's like, that is, yeah, that it's hard to argue against that. Great. So let's talk a little bit about uh, like measurement, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of ways mm-hmm. to measure personality. I know that there are many, many scales out there, maybe hundreds probably you (laughs) you probably know thousands yeah um uh, you know uh, and uh many of them are hundreds of questions long Mm -hmm. what would you do if you were designing this good version of the the corporate personality test to inform your hiring decision in a good fair and uh reliable way yeah so i think you know and some of this is going to get get away from like the concept of personality a little bit, right? But like I, so in my academic research, I work with a framework called the big five, which is five personality dimensions. So sort of five spectrums that you can kind of arrange people along. And I mentioned like conscientiousness is one of them. Extroversion is one of them. These are, um, we, people sometimes talk about the, the bandwidth fidelity trade-off. So you can measure something you can me- measure something really broad and general, and it will predict lots of outcomes, but weekly. Or you can measure something really specific, and it will predict a few outcomes better. And the big five is high bandwidth, low fidelity. Um, when, when you're measuring extroversion in the way that it's measured within the big five framework, you're getting at sociability, positive affect, assertiveness, like these things that are not all the same thing, but they're sort of correlated with each other, which is why they fall under this gigantic umbrella. If, I, if I'm thinking in a hiring setting, um, I probably am going to want to be thinking less about high bandwidth and more about high fidelity. Like, I, you know, I want to sit down with the, the, the managers or the, you know, the people defining this position, look at the position description, look at what it actually involves and do a more focused assessment on like, what are the skills, attributes, whatever it is, that's, that's a defensible thing to want to know. And how can I create something for that? And of course the, the downside is you have to, if you're going to, if you're going to be specific, then you have to be specific for every single kind of position you have. And that, that, you know, so that, that's why people sometimes fall back on these sort of high bandwidth things. It's like, oh, we can give the same questionnaire to everybody. Um, and so there is going to be a sort of a cost benefit analysis there. Um, but then at a certain point, you know, it kind of stops feeling like something you would label personality and starts just being like, a job interview, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, like, like, yeah. what are the features of this job that are important? And yeah, like, can yeah. we measure that in a standardized way? Yeah, and I think that's that's good practice is to do a job analysis and and measure what's what's relevant to the job. And so there may be some like maybe maybe trying to assess people's conscientiousness is like, well, that's that's relevant to pretty much everything, and so we want to include that in the mix for every job. So it might be some of both. What do you think would be the sort of larger societal 
impact of uh, of this sort of approach on people who are low in conscientiousness like are, are <laughs> is yeah, this, is yeah, this end I, up being bad yeah i you know i despite me saying that like conscientiousness does you know correlate with with behaviors that do well in the workplace there, there are a lot of fairness and justice issues involved in using these things. So I might actually come back around to where you started from by the end of this conversation, <laughs> because, you know, um, uh, one, I think, I think there's a, there's a kind of old fashioned view that um, that's not actually where most people inside the field are at, but there's this kind of like sort of superficial view of personality. These are just like, it's it's like essentialism like these this is like who you are forever in every situation and you know people personality psychologists would not view it that way you know when when i measure with like a big five instrument these you know five scores i you know i think about that as how somebody is on average but people vary any given individual varies around their average from moment to moment. I'm, I am sometimes more conscientious and other times less conscientious. Um, I remember a, f a few years ago, there was a, um, back when Facebook had Facebook apps, when that was a thing, uh -oh. there was a, a Facebook app that was like a personality test and you could, you could add it to your Facebook account and then your friends could fill it out and say what they think of you. And it would show you this oh. little graph, compare what you, wow. what you think yourself to what your friends think of it. And I remember um, on the conscientiousness thing, everyone thought I was high in conscientiousness except me and my wife. And it was like, <laughs> uh, it, it was like, she well, who's right. Oh, oh she, she was, yeah, she was, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, no, I, I put funny. on, I put on a, like a, and of course, like anyone who's tried to email me probably was a little bit lower than, than anyone else. But like, you know, it's like I put on a good show, but like she sees me every day. She knows the the real story. But it's like I, you know, when I have to for my job, I step up my game. And so, so back to like, you know, like I also just my politics, my view of the world is that everybody deserves dignified work if they're able to do it. And the idea, and so I, you know, there's some really like challenging issues that I have with like, like, I'm not going to abandon the concept of like selecting people for jobs. I'm not going to say like, we should just have like a lottery and you know, you get whatever you want to get. And, and, you know, but it, it, it is like everyone, you know, like, I think everyone should have the dignity of work and a job that they can, you know, support themselves and their family. And, and we're not in a society that's like that. And so, you know, if we're going to be like kicking people out of the workforce because of, you know, who they are, you know, it, it's just, it's complicated. So I don't, I don't know what to do with all that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a, yeah. a political theorist, but uh, it is, it is tough. And it definitely resonates with me, the feeling that I am different people in different situations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can feel quite extroverted, most mm -hmm. of the time not. But, yeah. um, you yeah. know, and if you ask other people, many of them say, yeah, totally, she is, and they're wrong. But personality still has this reputation of being a fairly stable construct. How stable is it? Yeah, so it depends a little bit what you mean by stability. So if you, if you give somebody a questionnaire and again, I th so, so 
if you give somebody a questionnaire, it's kind of like, what are you like typically or what are you like in general? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you give them that questionnaire 10 years apart, 20 years apart, 30 years apart in adulthood, the correlation of scores over time is, is fairly high. Uh, I don't know how nerdy your audience is if you want to hear like effect sizes, but it's Let's like a cor it. yeah. correlation of like, I'm trying to remember like 0. 0.7 yeah. over Very 20, high. 30 years. It's, it's high. It's not so high that there's no change. People can and do change. And, and that's one of my areas of research has been, you know, on personality development. There are also average changes. So the correlation is high, but everyone's kind of moving mm. in a similar direction. So people do get more conscientiousness during conscientious. Um, actually, they get more during early childhood and then they drop in their early teens, oh, yeah, and then they say, recover the from years. it. Yeah, yeah, and then and then <laughs> they they start coming back up in their later teens, and there's kind of this continued average increase. So, which is nice. Like, yeah. if you're if you're in your like twenties or even thirties, you can look forward to like getting your stuff together a little better, <laughs> on average. Um, so 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 it's sort of nuanced. But then there's also you know these are this is like what are you like on average at this age versus what are you like on average for you at that age but on average for you again is is you know we see moment to moment day to day a lot of variability and and some of that is systematic you know everybody is more extroverted at a party than they are at a funeral and so when people introspect and they're like i'm different people someone's like well yeah everybody's different people mm -hmm. those are just situations yeah. but then you know people's variability is not all the same. Um, and there's some really interesting research that a, a psychologist named Will Fleeson sort of has, has kind of pioneered where they ask people to report, like, what, what are you like right now? Like, how extroverted are you right now? How, like, right in this moment, how extroverted <laughs> are you being right now? How, you know, organized and together are you being right now? Whatever. And they poll people repeatedly several times a day over the course of weeks. And what they find is, you know, the average of all these measurements corresponds really well to what we get on the questionnaires, but there's a lot of variability and different people have different kinds of variability and the shape of that variability is itself a stable feature. So some people are, whatever their level of extroversion is, they're right around that all the time. And other people have the same average, but it's because sometimes they're wildly oh. outgoing and sometimes they're really, really quiet. And whether you're that person who's the same extroversion all the time or the person who wildly varies, that's a stable feature of you, too. So it's like mm -hmm. it gets really sort of like almost meta and complicated. Yeah. But that's a you can think of that as a form of personality change. It's more short term and situational. But that that's an important part of personality as well. And, and I think it, you know... And, and again, that's not like the sort of folk definition of personality, like what a normal person thinks of. They may not, that may not be the first thing that they think of, but the same things that we're measuring when we say we're measuring personality and find it to be stable over the long term, we can measure in the short term and find a lot of variability. So the, the sort of layperson's definition is kind of an incomplete picture, although it's certainly not, you know, completely wrong. Yeah. Well, I, fascinating to me, even just the, this notion that people are able to reliably uh, report their 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 own average, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's stable or, mm -hmm. or there's a lot of variability yeah. over time. Um, so I, I guess that's cool. That's promising yeah. for <laughs> for our skills and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there there's you know, and there's a lot of because the way we measure typically is with self reports. We give you a questionnaire about you, 
And there is a lot of research on, you know, sort of like that, that the, the sort of the assumption is that you know yourself and there's, there's some really interesting research. Like there are certain things about ourselves that we we're better at reporting than others. So people are, you know, if something is, um, not highly evaluative is if something's not sort of, again, it goes, sort of goes back to the stakes. People are better at reporting. Like it's okay if you're an extrovert, it's okay if you're an introvert, like American society kind of likes extroverts more than introverts a little bit, but it's not a huge difference. So it's like, yeah, okay. You're pretty good at reporting your extroversion. But if you ask people to self-report their intelligence, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's way the, above average. Yeah. Right. right. So, so, right. So first of all, yeah, everyone's above average. <laughs> The relative differences around above average don't have a zero correlation with standardized tests, but they're certainly not high. Um, so, so it sort of depends what you're asking about. But yeah. for most of the things, like the self-reports are, are kind of, they, they do okay. Awesome. I'm wondering about uh, the behavioral impact of, of personality. Like, to, to what extent do, can we predict someone's behavior if we know their personality? Like, how, how much of that actually translates? Yeah, so... That's been a, a, a long-standing question in the field going back. I mean, you know, that's, that's sort of like, why would you care in the first place? So it's sort of from the, from the beginning yeah, of the field. Exactly. And some of it is this bandwidth fidelity issue, right? So, you know, we find that the things like the big five, you, you get sort of broad to broad prediction. If I want to predict, like broadly broad outcomes like mental health or physical health there are correlations with personality with these broad personality traits if i want to predict workplace performance in really broad terms there are correlations they're not huge but they're you know they're not dismissible like i think the it's been a while since i've looked at it um this conscientiousness dimension I mentioned earlier does correlate with physical health, including mortality. And so I think a, like one standard deviation is associated with like several years of life expectancy. So, you know, several years is like, I'd like a few more years, That's a big deal. Um, yeah. but it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, if you're, you know, there's a lot of noise and fuzz in that. It's mm -hmm. not like if you mm -hmm. score one standard deviation below, it's like, you're going to die tomorrow or anything. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'd say mortality is a pretty important outcome. Um, I don't know if it's a behavior, <laughs> kind of, you know, but, um, yeah. But yeah, I've heard but, like medication adherence yes, is associated yes. there's a lot, with country. There's a lot of health behaviors. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's tough because again, like if I want to know if you're going to adhere to your medication, if I know your conscientiousness, like if I have a standardized assessment, it's going to, it's going to inform that guess. But if you ask me, what should you measure? Like Sanjay, design a questionnaire that'll measure medication adherence. Probably going to write items like, how often do you take your pills? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like the high fidelity, low bandwidth. If I ask, how often do you take your pills? That's going to do a pretty good job of predicting how often you take your pills, assuming that you're willing to be honest with me and you're not embarrassed about skipping your medication or whatever. It's going to do a poor job of predicting your workplace performance uh, because it's the sort of high fidelity to a different domain. So, you know, and, and is that personality? Well, you know, Aileen's high on pill takingness or whatever. Like, you know, I, I guess, I don't know. Um, it's a, if it's, if it's stable over time and, and, you know, it's kind of like how you interact with the world, I guess. Um, yeah. but it's, it's like a really sort of specific obscure thing. 
so yeah, so it, it does predict outcomes. Um, and and in, in compared to like broad uh, predictors, like there was a, an interesting com- sort of runoff between personality, socioeconomic status, and intelligence in predicting major outcomes. And they all do about the same. The effect sizes are about the same. And those things are, are kind of similar too. Like your socioeconomic status, it's a hugely important thing in society because it has some effect on everybody. But it's not necessarily the first thing you want to know for a really specific outcome. It matters at a societal level because of how many things it affects. And personality is kind of like the same way, although it's not a social structure in the same way. Okay, I'm going to push you on this a little bit. Um, so let's say that we we don't have the medication adherence measure. We only have something like conscientiousness. Um, and, and then you were to try and design an intervention to try and help that person, um, you know, do, do whatever, say, let's just stick with medicate, take their medication on time, right? Which strategy, or, and even tell me if there's research on this, would you take either kind of matching the intervention to their conscientiousness level? So say they're low in conscientiousness, would you basically work with what you've got there and, and uh, you know, kind of do that matching? Or would you try and get them to be more conscientious and, and basically, uh, it's sort of like two opposite yeah. ways of getting yeah, at the same yeah. thing. I think interventions to change personality traits is, it's an active area of research. I think there's some really interesting, promising, sort of, but very tentative findings. I'm you know, I've seen when I read some of these papers, I'm like, that sounds really interesting. I'm just not sure it's it's sort of ready. And and that's just the state of the research. That's how it is. You know, there's some sort of thorny questions about whether you can change like the broad, like, can you make somebody more conscientious at the broad level of conscientiousness? And it filters down to all the things that are part of conscientiousness or if you're going to change someone's conscientiousness, do you change all the individual things? And then it kind of adds up to a broad change, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of a top down versus bottom up. And I'm less convinced that we're going to have really good sort of top down interventions, but we could, right? I mean, I think this is where, you know, grit, if you, if you've heard of like the, this idea of grit, grit is conscientiousness. And that's sort of the promise that it's been held out with. But the interventions are challenging and, you know, there's a lot of correlational evidence, but like, is that actually like intervention? So, but I, I think, you know, it's possible that certain kinds of, you know, changes or supports might, might help. But I think, yeah, the, I think another way to use knowledge about someone's personality in an intervention is you can, so one thing it might do is it, it might tell you if you've got limited resources for your intervention, who to focus on. Like there are mm-hmm. some people who are either high conscientiousness. So you're like, I don't need to look over their <laughs> shoulders. Good. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, you know, I can guess that they're probably going to be pretty good. And so if I can only sort of like, if, if I'm going to have, let's say, a, a, you know, a worker in, in my healthcare office, check in on people and it costs money. It, it's, I can't have them just, you know, it's not free to like call people. So maybe I'll use this to sort of figure out like who should we prioritize for those check-ins? That might mm-hmm. be a thing to do. You know, some personality traits might tell you something about how people are going to respond to different interventions. Again, that's, there's some research 
that sort of is suggestive of that. It's these kind of interactions are sort of tricky to to detect in, in research, but you know, it might tell you, okay, this person needs to feel more validated about, mm-hmm. you know, um there or maybe, you know, this person's not taking it because they're anxious. You know, it's the high neuroticism thing. And so we need to make them feel better about like, you know, they're scared about the, the underlying condition and taking their medication just reminds them of it. And, and we need to address it in that way. And this other person is just forgetful, uh, you know, and so we need to give them, you know, uh, um, they just literally need a reminder because otherwise they'll forget. That's that's mm-hmm. me, by the way, my uh, um, my phone has reminders to take my medication every morning. <laughs> and if I, I would completely forget those if, if, if it was not for that. Um, so, yeah. So, so I think there's, you know, there's different avenues and yeah, like it, it, it's more than just changing people's personalities. I mean, the other thing is, is it, it might just give us just doing research with personality might help us understand why people aren't taking their medication. And the intervention might not be a personality intervention, but it just mm-hmm. like, if we're just looking at like, what are the differences between the high compliers and the low compliers? Is it, is it correlating with neuroticism? So it's anxiety. Is it correlating with conscientiousness? Is it correlating with, you know, I don't know, something else. Openness to experience the high, I don't, high openness people, uh, this isn't really about medication. High openness people do more like psychedelic drugs and that kind of thing. I guess that's a different domain. Anyway, it's a different um, kind of medication. Yeah, right. I guess it depends what the pills are, you know, maybe, you know, maybe some of them would, would tie into that. But anyway, yeah. All right. I think it's time for us to jump to our speed round. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what this is all about. Okay. Uh, this is this is a speed round called Would It Replicate? Um, and the idea is just, it's, you know, a basic thought experiment. I'm going to read some hypothetical research findings to you, and you're going to tell me, would it or would it not replicate? Um, and you can, <laughs> you can like give me a sentence or, or two about your, your further thoughts on it. Um, are, these, yeah, the, are you going to get me in trouble? Are these real? Like, are the people who did these studies listening? No, I'm, I'm just going to be like, no, I've completely no, no. made them up. They're, okay, okay, they're okay, definitely right. not real. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're, they you're are real, my, it's an accident. Okay, yeah. all right. You're asking for my theoretical priors, not my... Uh, um, yes, 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 yes. I'm not dishing uh, on people. Okay. <laughs> you'll see. You'll see. Uh, okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Excellent. Curly fry enthusiasts are more intelligent than people who prefer steak fries and home fries, but not shoestring fries, which are the most intelligent of all. That is actually based on a real finding, which I know. That's Mihai Kaczynski's work. You're trying to trap me here. Um, I, I have a very long answer to that. I'm sorry. This is I know this is the speed <laughs> round. Because I've thought a lot about the curly fry problem um, oh. from that from that paper. Yeah, well, can you then briefly just tell tell yeah, our yeah, audience yeah. So, what the so curly this fry was, problem is? Th- this this was a, a paper that uh, um, uh, this was actually there's a there's a fraught history because this was the the research that inspired Cambridge Analytica that they tried to steal from. This was the original research, right? But so um, they had personality questionnaires and intelligence and other stuff, and then they had people's likes on Facebook and what the, what and they used likes to predict personality traits to see like how much information about your personality is reflected in the pattern of things you've clicked like on in Facebook and one of the kind of cutesy findings was that curly fries so liking the curly fries page on Facebook was positively correlated with intelligence so <laughs> This gets into and and no and surprise this, there. Yeah, yeah, no, no surprise. <laughs> so, so this gets into some really interesting issues, right? So, in in one level, they cross they did cross validation 
so the chances are pretty good that in a purely statistical sense, I mean, it could have been a fluke, but there's a, there's a decent chance that it was not. What does that mean? So there's a lot of reasons why these things could be related. And, you know, one might be, you know, there was some person who happened to be high in intelligence who was like, uh, curly fries, and they clicked <laughs> like on it. And it showed up in their friends' feeds who all, you know, went to the same fancy college or whatever. I don't know. Um, and so it was just a fluke that turned into a real thing in that data set. But there's nothing fundamental about curly fries that has anything to do with intelligence. It was a one-time thing. So would it replicate? Well, in, in that really specific time and social media setting and everything else, it was a real thing. It just doesn't mean anything. Would it replicate 10 years later? No, um, there's nothing <laughs> fundamental. But, so it also brings up these questions about what what does replication mean? How similar? Because in some sense, it replicates, but it doesn't generalize uh -oh. beyond this really, you know. Anyway, I <laughs> told you. meant to be a lighthearted. You... <laughs> You, 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 you're, I'm still an academic. Speed round yeah, yeah. is not in my vocabulary. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, so that's so, so if you're, so I, my answer is in a new, in, in a even trivially new population setting, probably not. That, okay, I should have just said that and we could have kept on going. With no, no, no. I, 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 I love your, <laughs> I love your elaboration. Um, and, and there will, you'll see, there will be a little bit of truth slash yeah, yeah, a okay. nod to some research. Sorry, you, I, I have actually, so my research, I've done research on Twitter that is essentially building on that paradigm. So you just happen to hit on something that's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm like, you know, <laughs> armpit deep in this, uh, uh, in this problem. You, but, yeah. but you didn't answer the question, which is, was about shoestring fries oh, uh, shoestring being the fries. most intelligent of all. Those um, are the really skinny, amazing yes. ones. Uh, I, um, I like shoestring fries. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> Glad, glad we're on the Smart people like me must one. like sh shoe string fries, right? Like, I'm above <laughs> average intelligence, just like everybody else, right? Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay, next one. People who suppress their emotions are more likely to land in leadership roles. Fluke would not replicate. All right. Next one. Again, I, I did, those, I, my postdoc was on emotion suppression you're you're you know anyway okay all right did, hey, did, I, did I feel like research. i'm being set up here yeah okay you are all right, set up. All right. this is this is absolutely a setup <laughs> that is the whole point <laughs> all right your harry potter house is a more reliable assessment of personality than the myers-briggs replicates yeah because okay so chris soto uh, who, again, you're, you're going to get more of an answer than you wanted. But um, Chris Soto, uh, who was one of the co-authors of the Big Five Inventory 2, collected data by making a, a like a fun website, which is use the Big Five to sort people into their Harry Potter house. So if this is your Harry Potter house from Chris Soto's website, okay. Okay. then it is more reliable than, oh. than the Myers-Briggs. If this is your Harry Potter house from a BuzzFeed quiz, then they're probably about on the same footing. Awesome. Uh, we're definitely going to need to include that one uh, in the show notes. <laughs> a link for everyone to to figure out what the Harry Potter house I, is. I don't know if it's still around. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to look. If it is, I'll definitely share that link. Cool. All right. Researchers who pre-register their studies have higher rates of external collaboration than those who don't. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm going to say it replicates because anybody studying researchers who pre-register is probably somebody who pre-registers 
and pre-registered studies are more likely to replicate. So I'm I'm going to go a little meta on you. If, wow. Uh, wh- whoever <laughs> so did that study, <laughs> whoever, whoever got that result probably pre-registered their analysis. So it's more reliable. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Um, okay, N- now we're going to do a, a totally different kind of thing. I'm going to give you each big five trait. Um, I, I use the ocean uh, order. And you're going to tell me where personality researchers fall on the spectrum for, for each one. So just in like broad strokes, low, medium, high. Or, or I'm going to tell you and you're going to tell me um, like whether it checks out. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So personality researchers tend to be medium in openness. I would say they're relative to the general population high. All Pretty right. much all academics, I think, are, are high. Relative to the general population. <laughs> Specific to personality researchers, though. All right. Yeah. High in conscientiousness. Um, Except for you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm doing a little projecting here. Uh, <laughs> I think um, relative to the general population, high relative to, to sort of behavioral scientists, medium to medium low. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Low in extroversion. Um, that is, I, I have DJed. The dance party at the end of the Association for Research and Personality Conference. So I know that they're not low. <laughs> they're not low. Interesting. Uh, I was pretty confident on that one. Uh, <laughs> but is there, there has to be a selection effect to like who comes to the. Oh, everybody comes when I'm da- DJing. Oh, everybody oh, comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it, it right, might, it's right, one of those right, situational right. things. It's just the music that brings it out, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Medium in agreeableness. I think that's true relative to the general population. I think personality psychologists relative to behavioral science are disagreeable. Mm, wow. wow cool. we're, we're the grumps. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And medium in neuroticism. Um, yeah, that's about right. I think there's a huge range. When I th- Just the sort of the people that are popping into my head, there's a huge range. So I'd say the average is medium, <laughs> but, but with yeah. a high variance around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's t- I, I had to kind of play it safe. Uh, yeah. With yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. So while we're kind of talking about controversial things, I have one final question for you, which mm-hmm. is, what is your most controversial opinion in behavioral science? Yeah. So you were very kind to send me this question in advance so I could think about it. And <laughs> I, I learned after not doing that. In too many cases, it's just like too hard of a question not yeah, to. Yeah. So I tweaked to the question slightly. You asked me for my most controversial opinion in behavioral science. I'm going to give you my controversial opinion on behavioral science. Got it. Which is that there's a lot more BS than most people think. Mm. And I think, and I'm not throwing behavioral science under the bus. I mean, I'm a behavioral scientist, I guess. I don't know. Um, Of course, maybe my stuff's BS too. But um, I think... And I'll uh, I'll say it for a couple of reasons. One, you know, so I, I, I'm not, I don't blog anymore, but I I have a blog that's called, that I started about 10 years ago, blogged for a while called The Hardest Science. And it's sort of a play on the idea of hard sciences, right? And I was like, psychology is the hardest, is the most difficult science. Mm -hmm. And to do research well is really hard. And there, there's a way when you say this to people in psychology or behavioral science, if you say it a certain way, they like it because they're like, yeah, it is hard. Yeah. Like that, you know, like we're, we're, we're doing this really difficult thing and they feel good about themselves. But then you have to take that the extra step and say, so if it's really hard, then you're probably wrong most of the time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is, it is really hard. And, and I think one of the issues is if you think about all the things you would like to see in good research, 
you'd like to see a really compelling theoretical basis. You'd like to see a large sample that's representative of who you're trying to apply it to. You'd like to see, you know, rigorous analyses pre-registered. You'd like to see, like all these things, you, you, you know, an exciting idea, a well-told story at the end, everything. I think when we evaluate research mentally, this is me being a behavioral scientist about behavioral science. I think the mental model is an averaging model. I think people, and you see this all the time where a study comes out and people will say things like, God, they, they were, you know, this is a longitudinal study with a huge sample. They were working on it so hard. And, and then, you know, you'll be like, yeah, but they, you know, they P hacked it. <laughs> like, like I looked at, they, they pre-registered. I looked at the pre-registration, the analyses they're reporting weren't the ones they pre-registered. Like, I'm, I'm not making this up. Like, I, they, but they worked so hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's it, like, it doesn't one, really count if you don't follow yeah. your pre-registered analysis. And the, yeah. I think the, the, the model for actual scientific quality is multiplicative, right? You multiply two things together. And if one of them zero, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. And I think, I think there's a, a disconnect, a little bit of slippage between our mental model that's additive. And of course, you press people on this and, and they'll totally acknowledge, they'll say like, you know, if the measurement's crap, um, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. If the measures don't mean what they're supposed to mean, of course, I, you know, in the abstract, people know this, but I think it's just really hard when we see it in practice. And so it's, I think it's really hard to do research well. And it's, and I think it's hard to evaluate research because a lot of research has some really good things about it. Um, and you kind of have to, you know, not everything, you know, there are some things that are, are not like this sort of like, you know, if it's not there, you know, they're not the mul multiplicative parts. Like there, there are some, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's just, it's really hard to do research well. And it's really hard to evaluate behavioral science research. And so I think there's a lot of selling there's a lot of not the good kind of storytelling like i'm i'm not anti-storytelling but i think there are people who write the story before they look at the results um and then find a way to make it all line up um or they write the story before they even design the study and then they find a way to so sometimes it's reliable because they found a, a like invalid way of of you know sort of supporting their hypothesis or whatever so yeah so that's my my uh uh my controversial opinion is is most of it sucks um yeah. very, very dismal outlook here <laughs> but i i think you know i i don't think most people who know me would call me a humble person but i'm i do have a sense of humility about the enterprise we're part of like i do think it's really hard i don't think that translates into it not being worth doing not at all i'm <laughs> i chose this career and i'm still in it um i think it's just it's 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 really hard and all the stuff that follows from it being really hard because it's really hard we're just not going to get it right very often <laughs> but we should keep trying when we yeah. do get it right it's it does amazing things and and so we have to keep at it so you just mentioned the career that you chose. Do you have any thoughts about your career over time, or uh, <laughs> yeah? So how'd you like I, that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a nice uh, um, lots of lots of room in that question. So yeah, no, I I'm about to be changing careers, moving from the academic sector to the private sector, and it is you know so i've been a professor for 18 years and i'm about to become a behavioral scientist at a big tech 
tech corporate. Am I allowed to say where I'm going to work? Know. Just yeah, don't. I don't know. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> it, 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 um, it's famous for garages and turtlenecks. I don't know. You can you all can figure it out. And so you know, I think the the like there is a view in academia that is when I was in graduate school, there was a lot of just open hostility towards doing anything outside of academia. Like we're giving you know we're we're giving you your PhD to do academic work. How dare you think of like sullying yourself, you know, by, by doing something yeah. meaningful like to all, the world. All of this mentorship and yeah, effort yeah. was wasted on yeah. you. And I, I say this, I'm not, I'm not speaking specifically about my own advisors. I just mean the, 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 the climate. And I think some of that is still around for sure. A lot of that is still around. I think it's softened a little bit. I think where it's softened to in some cases is kind of a like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. Good for you. You know, kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a sort of, you know, um, like, I don't really mean it. And to or, me, or, or you'll come running back, like you'll, you'll come running back or like, well, that's good for you. You're, you know, that's the best you could do. Nice try, you know, whatever. I think there's still a lot of like more, you know, there's still plenty of the open hostility. I think there's also still the the I, I think there's also sometimes just a sort of subtle disdain. Um, Mm-hmm. And it's dumb and it's, it's wrong. And it's, first of all, people in industry are working on really hard problems. I, mean, I just got through this whole soapboxy thing about how hard what we do is and like solving actual problems is, is really hard. <laughs> also um, hard. Also yeah. hard. Uh, but also like, you know, people just have different preferences and priorities and it's not that one kind of work is better on some moral or intellectual level or whatever. Um, and academia has all kinds of issues with, I think the, you know, that the job market is incredibly tight and it's tight, not only in the sense that it's hard to get a job, but in, in ways that are biased, right? Like, you know, making people move multiple times to, to grad school and then to do one or two or three postdocs and then to their faculty job or whatever, that doesn't hit everybody the same. I think if you're, uh, um, if you've got a family, if you've got a, a partner with their own career, if you've got you know, if you're not from a privileged background, and so you've got people beyond maybe your your own kids or partner who who might be financially dependent on you, it's going to be harder to do that stuff. And I think that's a real big diversity problem for academia. So there's that. And there's also just like, it's good, interesting work out there. And so, you know, I don't think I ever really bought into this sort of academic snobbery. And my but it went from sort of an abstraction to reality because I've had three PhD students in a row go into the tech industry and it was the right choice for them. They got good jobs. They got jobs that worked for their families and their lives. They enjoy what they do. They find the work interesting and just they're over. It's the right decision for them overall as whole people. And so I, you know, I found myself like I was looking at this and and I was like, and, you know, sometimes their starting salaries are more than I was making as a full professor. So there's that, too. And, I, you know, and so I was looking at this and and like and, and then there are other issues, big macro structural issues in academia that the working even when you're a full professor like I am you know, it's not all sunshine and roses. And there were some things that were happening at my institution that were um, deeply frustrating and dispiriting to me. I think the uh, the commitment of institutional leaders to 
creating a climate where people feel good about work is just completely missing. They, you know, there, there are these big structural problems with public funding to higher education is getting cut and universities have to, and I, I would not want to be a university president and have to deal with this because it's a really hard problem that they have to figure out how to sustain these institutions with less and less money. But at my institution, the, the response to that has been to chase gigantic donors and in, in doing that to create a system of haves and have nots where they select a few favorites and they dole out access and resources. And I've been on the upside of that and I've been on the downside of that. And I don't like either one. Like, I don't think that's a good, like universities have a mission and I don't think that's the way to fulfill that mission. And so, you know, and I, I, I won't get into the more specifics of my own situation, but maybe, maybe for another episode, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I just, I was looking at all that and I was like, I got to see what my other options are. And like, I could stay in this job out of inertia. I have tenure. I'm, you know, whatever. I could keep collecting a paycheck. I don't want to do that. If I'm going to stay, I want staying to be an actual choice. And I want to look at staying and something next to staying. And I want, and if I stay, it's, it has to be because staying beats the other thing. And it turns out the other thing was really awesome. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the company that you're going to join is very lucky to have you. I'm sure. And this was, this was so terrific. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, I can't, can't wait to share this with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Time to wrap up another episode of the Behavioral Design Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, and I am an AI. Yeah, welcome to Uncanny Valley. Sam and Aline told me this is going to be an awesome season. So make sure to subscribe and help spread the word. Maybe share the podcast with a colleague or friend. And if you want to show us some extra love, head over to Habit Weekly. Come and join our community. Pro members get access to a wealth of resources and the chance to interact with leading practitioners. It's a great way to support the podcast and deepen your understanding of behavioral design. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pizarro. And thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. For questions or ideas for future episodes, email podcast at habitweekly.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, do 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 do